0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ, I'm Jerome McDonald. Around the world, people are increasingly using the courts to get government action on climate change. Earlier this month, a court in the Netherlands ordered that the government there had to drastically curtail greenhouse gas emissions. Yesterday was supposed to be the first day in court for 21 young people here in the U.S. who've brought charges against the U.S. government for not doing enough to stop climate change. The case Juliana versus the United States was delayed by more challenges by the Justice Department. Public support for the case is growing. There were several dozen rallies across the country in support of Juliana versus the United States, including here at Federal Plaza. With me is Phil Gregory, co-lead counsel of Juliana versus the United States. Thanks for joining me, Phil.
1: Thank you for having me on Worldview.
0: Tell me a little about the case. You've been at this since 2015. Where did the idea for the suit come from?
1: Well, the idea for the suit came from um, the concept of not trying to save one polar bear at a time or shut down one power plant at a time when the problem is the emissions of fossil fuels into the atmosphere. So what really needed to occur was for for the fossil fuel energy system to be changed to solar, wind, and water. And the only way to do that is to find the appropriate basis for a claim, which uh, naturally is our constitution.
0: And the young people involved, they are charging the government with um, with what exactly? How do you charge the government on uh, not doing enough on climate change?
1: Well, it, the way to frame it is the federal government does not, under the Constitution, have a duty to protect you unless, and this is the big unless, the federal government is the party causing you the harm. Here... The documents are very clear that the federal government has known since at least 1965 that the continued uh, business-as-usual emissions of fossil fuel fuels would create a catastrophic climate for children starting in approximately 2015, and it would get worse so that Obviously, if you're familiar with the climate science, the brunt of climate change is going to be borne by these young plaintiffs, their generation and future generations, unless something is done right now.
0: It seems like the um, the Justice Department has you know given quite a bit of attention to this case. And I, uh, part of the reason would be you're going to use the government's own data to argue against them. <laughs> You've got a lot of government data that says that they they know things
1: we have numerous and and I'm not talking about tens I'm talking about hundreds of uh, significant government reports and policy statements that talk about how the government knows it's harming the climate by allowing for example fossil fuel subsidies by uh, uh, allowing coal to be extracted from federal lands Yet the government has continued to keep its foot on the accelerator. And as a result, the climate data, the government's own climate data, shows a dramatic increase in temperatures, a dramatic increase in CO2 in the atmosphere. And as a result, uh, huge problems uh, such as the storms we're experiencing and the ice melts leading, leading to sea level rise.
0: Now, I've been reading some of the ideas that the Justice Department has in combating this, and one of the things they say against the case is that you can't run a climate policy from a courthouse in Oregon. You you know, this is no way to run, uh, to to set climate policy. This is crazy. Is that any kind of an argument?
1: It's really not in our case. It's, for example, let's, let's instead of talking about climate, let's say the word Segregation was being used, and that the a court in Oregon was saying that uh, um, segregated schools, for example, are unconstitutional. The, the court would then say to the school district or the or the state, "You develop a plan to get your school um, integrated on a on a, a prompt path." Well, that's exactly what we are asking. Judge Anne Aiken to here in Eugene to do, not herself develop a plan, but to order the federal government to develop and implement a plan that addresses this constitutional violation.
0: I'm talking with Phil Gregory, co-lead counsel in Juliana versus the United States. It's the suit where 21 young people are suing the federal government for not doing enough to mitigate climate change. Coming up after this conversation, we'll hear a BBC documentary on police shootings of disabled people. Um, Phil, how was the rally yesterday? You had a rally there in Eugene, and there were rallies across the country in support of the case. Um, What was it like?
1: The rallies were really exciting. We had the Uh, Youth plaintiffs talking about their experiences with climate change. We had a number of people uh, throughout the state of Oregon who came uh, to the rally and spoke about climate change issues and the need for the federal government to address this problem immediately.
0: The um, Juliana in the uh, versus the United States, Juliana is the eldest uh, plaintiff there. And what were, who are some of the others? Tell us about the people who have who filed the suit.
1: Certainly. So we have Levi. He's 11 years old. He lives on a barrier island uh, off the coast of Florida, and his island is experiencing significant sea level rise. We have Jaden from um, near Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And her home has, in the past couple of years, twice been flooded, even though uh, they don't live in a floodplain. And uh, meteorologists had said there would only be a flood there once in a thousand years. Yet there have been two in the past three years. And she woke up one morning, stepping out of her bed in her bedroom, right into uh, a large amount of water and sewage. And as Jaden puts it, she woke up and stepped into climate change. Those are two of the plaintiffs. We have Nathan uh, in Alaska, and I don't need to tell you what's going on up in Alaska. And uh, we have Victoria from New York City and the worries there uh, as a result of the hurricanes. So what we're dealing with is uh, um, youth from around our country, who both before the lawsuit was filed and since the filing of the lawsuit have experienced significant effects due to climate change. Uh,
0: how significant is it that courts in the Netherlands and other countries are also having similar cases and, and people are winning? Is, is that something that uh, our courts will have to take into consideration?
1: Yes. For example, um, One of the justices on the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, has written about the importance of acknowledging the uh, uh, decisions in other countries on issues where the Supreme Court has to grapple with something that is not necessarily, let's call it, in their wheelhouse. And so looking at these decisions, the decision coming out of the Philippines, as you alluded to, out of the Netherlands, These decisions provide guidance to our courts on how to address an issue as significant and as potentially catastrophic as climate change.
0: Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Juliana versus the United States going forward. Thanks a lot for joining us, Phil Gregory, co-lead counsel for Juliana versus the United States.
1: Thank you for having me on Worldview, and thanks for supporting our case.
0: The BBC has produced a startling documentary on people with disabilities being shot by police. We'll hear it after the break. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. Police in America are often in the spotlight, accused of abusing their power, especially when it comes to shooting and killing of unarmed people of color. But there is another disturbing trend that rarely gets discussed. Research suggests a significant number of people injured and killed each year by police in the U.S. have a disability. For the BBC special investigation, Don't Shoot, I'm Disabled, correspondent Aleem Makboul looked into why so many people with serious mental illness, learning difficulties, or physical impairment are dying at the hands of police. A warning, some may find this content disturbing.
2: West
3: Milwaukee Police. Um, look, there's a young man here who, I think he has a psychotic, break. Right? Mm-hmm. He's standing naked in the hallway.
2: The states there's a man standing naked in the hallway, thinking yeah. he might be having a mental breakdown.
4: The man was Adam Trammell, a 22-year-old from Milwaukee who had schizophrenia.
2: Is he just naked, nothing else? He doesn't have any weapons or anything?
5: in No, 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 he doesn't have any weapons. Now, now, he just shut the door now. He's saying something about the devil, Is something about the devil and his brother.
4: Moments later, responding to this emergency call from a neighbour, three police officers arrive at his apartment.
6: Police department, we need to check on you. We want to make sure you're okay.
4: You're listening to footage from one of the body cameras worn by the police, and what you're about to hear is extremely distressing.
6: This is your last chance. We need you to open up. Otherwise, we have to come in.
4: The knocking continues for eight minutes until...
6: Step away from the door.
4: Once inside, the officers make their way through the apartment, eventually entering the bathroom, where they pull back the shower curtain to reveal Adam. His parents told us that when he was having an anxiety attack, he'd take a shower to calm down.
5: Just come on out, OK? Come on out. Come on out.
4: Adam stares at the officers in bewilderment. He stands totally still and looks like he's in a state of shock.
6: Brandon. Brandon? What's wrong? What's wrong?
4: The policemen say they wanted to check how he was, but instead, when he doesn't respond to the command, shouted at him.
6: You're going to get tased. <laughs> OK, now you need to listen. Just relax, OK? Just relax.
4: One of the officers gives him an electric shock. Over the next ten minutes, Adam, not Brandon as they were shouting, and who doesn't appear to be behaving in a threatening manner, gets more distressed and screams all the more desperately.
6: They get tased again, okay? I'm just we need to we need
4: to He's tased in total fifteen times.
6: Just relax, we're here to help you. Okay? Relax. We're here to help you. Hey Danny get the task in right here. Danny, just collect
4: the He's later dragged out of his apartment, several officers on top of him.
7: He is in cuffs but they're in front of him.
4: He's then sedated, but moments later, Adam Tramiel stops breathing and dies. He became part of a disturbing trend that rarely gets talked about, that a staggering proportion of the hundreds of people who die after interactions with the police in the US every year have a disability. Conservative estimates show the figure to be around 25%, but other research suggests it's much more. In this BBC investigation, which takes us to different parts of the country, we ask why. And find some with learning difficulties, mental illness and physical disabilities fearing for their lives. And police stuck in a system that just doesn't prepare them for lethal encounters that affect them for life.
2: I could barely stand to watch it.
4: Parents Kathleen and Larry have also watched the police body cam footage showing Adam's final moments.
2: Because I could, I could feel the pain almost, and I focus on God, I can watch this, and I. Where is the imminent danger? There was none. And then, no that he suffered like that, for no reason at all. He didn't deserve it at
8: all. He's in a bathtub. No threat. He's in a bathtub. He's laying in a tub, dying.
4: They'd been proud that in spite of the challenges, their son had started living independently and had even secured a job at a pizza place. Now Adam had suddenly been snatched away from them. But even having seen the footage that you've just heard, the Milwaukee District Attorney ruled that, in his words, there was no basis to conclusively link Mr Tremell's death to the actions taken by the police officers. Of course, we're all left with so many questions after hearing a case like that, and we'll find out how the officers involved justified it a little later. But as we look at other cases involving the deaths of people with different types of disabilities, and we'll detail two more equally distressing cases in this programme, clear patterns start to emerge.
3: Ethan is obviously smiling and posing in front of the car, so that that was great. And the officer gave him his business card, and Ethan's wearing his uh,
4: camouflage... 26-year-old Ethan Saylor, who had Down syndrome... police officers. He'd even wanted to be one.
3: Yeah, he's, look at that big grin. He is really happy that day to see that officer.
4: One evening he'd been at the cinema in Frederick County, Maryland, with a carer, but at the end of the film, Zero Dark Thirty, he left, but decided to return to his seat.
6: We're spending billions of dollars. We are still no closer to defeating our enemy.
4: He'd been in awe of the CIA characters and wanted to see the movie again. As he sat, he'd even tried to call the CIA to ask how he could join. Hearing someone wasn't leaving, though, three off-duty police officers who were working as security guards went into the cinema. Ethan's mother, Patty, takes up the story from evidence given in an investigation.
3: One of them said, come on, fellas, it looks like we're going to have a fight on our hands. And um, at some point it becomes, you need to leave or you're going to be arrested. And Ethan still doesn't move. And so the officers uh, put their arms under his arms to lift him up and to remove him from the theater. So somehow in those next seconds or minutes, Ethan um, ends up on the floor, face down, uh, and is not breathing.
4: Ethan was restrained, handcuffed, and had been crying out before he died. Patty first thought he'd passed away due to an unexplained medical complication.
3: I believe it was two weeks later we were called to the Sheriff's Department. The autopsy report was back. And they told us that the medical examiner had ruled this a homicide and the death was caused by asphyxiation. And, um... That was probably the most dramatic and traumatic moment in all this, was realising he had been killed.
4: At the time, Ethan's death did spark a debate in the US about police interactions with people with disabilities, but the deaths keep on coming. we're in Oklahoma City to look into the case of a man who was confronted by police in front of his own home, and police perceived that he was carrying a weapon. Actually, it was a piece of steel piping, but they shouted instructions for him to drop it, and he didn't. In the end of that confrontation, the man was shot and killed. The problem was, he never heard the instructions that the police were giving him. As all the neighbors around were shouting at the police, he couldn't hear those instructions.
1: He was deaf. On the scene, on the story with breaking news, News 9 starts now. Right now on 9, police shoot and kill
5: a deaf man in a confrontation.
8: Police say it's unclear whether the two officers involved heard what the witnesses were yelling.
5: Myself and my daughter were actually screaming at him you know, that he was deaf, that he couldn't hear anything. They both discharged their weapons after Sanchez didn't respond to verbal commands.
4: Police say they went to the home of Magdiel Sanchez because they suspected his father had been involved in a hit-and-run incident where someone was injured. Surveillance footage from the house across the street from Magdiel's shows that at one point he did run towards officers, but then walked away again, holding a pipe. Moments later, out of shot... He was killed
3: i came to the window after the shots were fired and i looked out and i seen the young man and the two officers
4: but what was clear speaking to neighbors like regina smith was that magdiel sanchez as well as being deaf also had learning difficulties
3: i just realized it was him and i was like what could he have done what
4: kind of a person was he?
3: He was a special needs child, and he was deaf, and he was real timid. You know, was an older boy, but he was like a child.
4: The question many had was why he was holding a piece of pipe. Well, we met the neighbour, Kevin Tillery, who encouraged him to carry it.
1: He would see me going up and down the street with a stick, and
4: one day One morning he came by the house and he held his stick up and he smiled and he goes like, you know, and then gave me the thumbs up. Because you inspire them to to carry the stick. stick. Why were you carrying the stick? The dogs and some of the people around here, but mainly the dogs, scared me. As in all the cases we've heard about, there have been no prosecutions of the officers involved. We spoke to the Oklahoma City Police Chief, William City, who said the officers killed Magdiel Sanchez in
6: self-defense. Nobody disputes that they were yelling that he was deaf. Nobody disputes that. That Some of them weren't yelling he was deaf, some of them were yelling he can't, you know, he doesn't understand, he doesn't understand. Well, that could mean he doesn't understand English, but he understood who they were. You know, that's why we wear uniforms.
4: He may have known there were police officers, but if, if he was deaf and had learning disabilities, he may not know how to interact.
6: It's our job to be able to respond to situations in a manner which creates the best possible outcome.
4: You can't look at that situation and think, this was the best possible outcome.
6: Under the circumstances at that moment, with what they had to work with, it was the best possible outcome. Already this year, right across the
4: US, at least 130 people with a range of disabilities, physical, mental and intellectual, are confirmed to have been killed by police officers. In hundreds more cases, it was never determined whether the person killed had a disability at all. But what of the officers involved in taking the life of someone with a disability?
8: <laughs>
4: Staying in Oklahoma City, we rode with Sergeant Corey Nooner as he went on patrol. He revealed to us a moment 15 years ago that changed his life.
5: I was involved in this critical event where um, I had a subject who was armed with a knife outside of school, and. Um, um, <clears throat> I was forced into a situation where I didn't have any other choice uh, but to, to shoot and kill the individual. Um, we were outside of school. She was armed with a very large knife. She wasn't responding to my instructions um, in my direction. And after uh, the incident was over, uh, I was able. Uh, to be told that she had a history of mental illness, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't understand what was going on at the time, but so, so I had to address said the, the issue. Uh,
4: at the time, you, you you felt you had no choice. Do you do you feel differently about that event
5: now? No, I don't feel differently about it now. Outside of that event, outside of the pressure cooker, outside of those milliseconds that the officer has to make a decision, many people have the benefit of of looking back at that with minutes if not hours or days to contemplate what they would have done and then they judge the officer because they didn't do the thing that I would have done.
4: So why does it happen so often with so many people with disabilities being killed by the police? Well firstly all police here are of course armed and they face members of the public who are too notoriously in places like Chicago's South Side. When we talk about police killings in America, the biggest stories of the last couple of years, of course, have surrounded those that sparked massive race riots. And just because we're talking about disability, that doesn't mean that race and poverty don't also play a part. They do. A lot of the cases that we've looked at where people with disabilities have been killed in interactions with the police happen in low-income areas. And that's partly because of the higher police presence in those areas, the higher potential for violence. But also, according to those who've looked into this issue for a long time, the attitude of police when they come into those areas. Southside Chicago is predominantly African-American, has challenges with inequality and crime and is one of the most heavily policed areas in the US. It's seen many instances where people with disabilities have died in interactions with officers. The complaint from many there is that police too often command and control shouting commands and physically dominating, especially when someone doesn't immediately comply. And that can include the use of lethal force. The problem is, as we've already heard, some people just can't comply.
2: I myself had a couple of experiences with police officers.
4: Candace Coleman, who herself has cerebral palsy, works as a community organiser with young people who have autism, schizophrenia and learning impairments. She sees a clear reason why so many may be injured or killed in interactions with officers.
2: If they do encounter a police, then it's a scary situation. Um, they don't know this person, they've never seen it, who's this person with... With a gun, uh, or in blue, like, why are these lights flashing? These loud sounds, what are all of these things? That enforcement of control and body, like, I have to control you. If I'm not used to that, then I'm going to respond in a way that would look as if I'm being defiant.
4: Larry Trammell, who watched his son get repeatedly tased on that horrific police body cam footage in nearby Milwaukee, can identify with all of that.
8: There's times when, you know, you couldn't um, touch Adam. He got really withdrawn or he get up excited, you know what I mean? So I always knew when I dealt with Adam is to stay back from him and let him talk, you know what I mean? And if I went in there and just used my authority as a father, I'm your father, this, this, it just didn't work. Larry Tramiel told me his son
4: Adam often had delusions and hallucinations. He feels when they burst into his apartment and confronted him in his own shower, the police could not have done a worse job of
8: handling that. They escalated it. And the point is, if Adam was going through one of his emotional things, is that when the police came in and he looked at them, he might have not thought that was them. And by them calling him by the different name, he was thinking, this ain't real.
4: After weeks of trying, we finally managed to speak, on the phone at least, to the district attorney, John Chisholm, who had ruled Adam did not die as a result of the actions of the officers who tased him numerous times.
1: They're not doing this because they wanted to harm Adam. It's the exact opposite, right? They, they're but it doing doesn't this look because... like that, does it? But it does, though. They're... they're, they're expressed intent any number of times is that they were there to help him, that they wanted to get him out of that situation.
4: They kept saying situation. that as, he ta- yeah. as they tased him.
1: Right, right, because they had to get him under control so that they could get him to some medical attention.
4: You're saying that it was not unreasonable that they tased him.
1: That's correct, not not based on their training, and the decision that they have to make is, is what's the uh, appropriate means to get him under control so that they can get him the medical attention at that point in time.
4: Not based on their training. If that's what their training tells them to do, there clearly is a problem. But more and more because of a mental health system widely thought to be failing, police are being forced into encounters that trained medical professionals should be handling. And also many people with mental disabilities go untreated because of lack of access to healthcare. Hundreds of thousands of people with serious mental illness who could have benefited from better treatment are instead languishing in American prisons, which are fast becoming the default mental health facilities for many in this country. Back in the state of Oklahoma, where Magdiel Sanchez, who was deaf and had learning difficulties, was killed, Police Chief William City described to us the situation his department is facing.
6: Our calls for mental health from like 2012 to 2016 have more than tripled. And so officers are dealing with that on a daily basis. This society has not effectively dealt with mental health. They haven't provided the dollars for treatment. Officers that are having to, they're running from call to call to call and dealing with issues like this. And in most cases, those officers go out there and they deal with those situations without having to use any force at all. But some of those calls, as we now know, have ended with a
4: disabled person being killed by officers who say they felt threatened. But if there is no option and police are to be the first to be called, how can things improve?
3: And so the world is very frustrating to somebody with an intellectual disability.
4: Patty Saylor took the devastation caused by the death of her son, Ethan, who had Down syndrome, and has tried to turn it into something positive.
3: I have to tell you, and you can hear my passion... If you don't know somebody with Down syndrome, you are missing out.
4: Today, she's running a training session with officers to teach them how to deal with people with a disability, calmly using her terrible personal experience.
3: Ethan didn't have the cognitive ability to recognize those officers needed an explanation, like, oh, officer, it's okay. I'm going to sit in my seat here and watch this movie a little the second time. My mom's on her way. She'll pay for the ticket.
4: What reactions have you had from officers when you explain your story?
3: Officers generally put their head down a little. They look contrite. They look sorry. Almost every officer seems to take on a little bit of shame.
4: The department whose officers were involved in Ethan's death, though, has not engaged with Patty. They agreed a financial settlement with her, but never so much as apologised or admitted any wrongdoing. They refused all our interview requests. But earlier in the program, we heard from Sergeant Corey Nooner, who himself shot and killed a woman with a mental disability. That experience pushed him to take training on the issue. He's now one of Oklahoma City's trained specialists who attends calls from people with mental illness. Colin
3: probably wants an officer to come out and talk to his wife, that
5: she needs to get help. Okay, so that was the call that was just dispatched. We're going to be en route to a husband who's calling in on his wife. Um... Uh, believes that she uh, needs help with a mental health issue. One out of 122 will respond out there with Adam Seventy. We arrive at the couple's home on a suburban
4: street in Oklahoma City.
5: You mind if we come inside? Is that okay? Hi there. My name is Sergeant Nooner. I'm with the police department. Your husband called us about what's going on today. He has more perspective than me. Okay. Tell me me your perspective. Once inside the house,
4: he finds a woman who appears to be experiencing a manic, paranoid episode.
6: Because I can tell with my own eyes. It's an anomaly on the computer. I see the tick. And I'm like, oh, they're watching me. I can see it.
4: When he tries to take her away to a psychiatric facility, the situation quickly becomes more heated.
6: They are taking me without consent. OK, that's I right, do not we're not. I not consent to this.
5: That's right, you're not consenting.
4: Disability or not, the vulnerable do sometimes still end up in handcuffs. Even officers who've had disability training sometimes feel their own protection must come first. As Sergeant Noonan knows from the incident where he felt he was forced to kill a schizophrenic woman,
5: a lot of times when you see these shootings, you'll see officers. They'll be like, you know, they'll yell a curse word. Or it's after it's over, they're, they're they'll voice some kind of frustration, you know, and, and that is, absolutely is because they know they're 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 like. Why? Why did that happen? And why would they not just do what I wanted them to do? Why would they not reach? Why didn't they just comply?
4: But, but you know, all all your training now will tell you, and I'm, I'm sure you're telling officers all the time, there are situations where people
5: can't, for whatever reason, comply. But that's... The officer doesn't know that. There's no external indication that I'm mentally ill. All we see as officers who are responding to an event is a violent threatening behavior that we have to intervene to stop but safety of the officers and the community have to be paramount i have to make sure i go home to my family at night
4: but that still sounds like people who can't comply for whatever reason could still get harmed almost before police can compute that there's a problem there?
5: Absolutely they can.
4: That's something we keep coming back to. An issue with the way the police are taught to interact from the very beginning with so much emphasis on firearms training and relatively little on de-escalating confrontations. Disability and race advocate Candace Coleman says that's hard to override however much extra teaching police officers get on vulnerable groups.
2: So the trainings is one thing, but it's not enough. We need a cultural shift across the board. I think that uh, the way upon which they approach situations need to change. You shouldn't always be uh, immediate reaction is to pull out your gun or your teaser or to yell or scream. That fast-paced time does not give you room to assess a situation on what's actually happening. It's important having time so that there can be a more thorough assessment of what is going on. When I was growing up I had to watch everybody else play sports because I was in a chair half the time. Mm-hmm.
4: We went with Candice to Southside Chicago where she grew up and where she works to find out about the effect it's having on the community, seeing her interact with some of the young people she works with, like TJ who has autism.
2: Oh you almost got it that time. Whoop, don't hit me. Well don't we go It has made parents fearful of calling the police. Also has made individuals with disabilities themselves fearful of being around police. One of the ways that I'm aware is parents are trying to teach their kids more about police. Um, And then it has gone as far as parents asking uh, to actually put in the curricula, how should my kid interact with the police officer if they're in front of them. I am an organizer so I organize uh, young adults and immediately the plan usually centers around what we do about the police in this case. How do we protect ourselves? It's not even the arrest part that's the worry, it's the fact that I feel like I will be bodily harmed.
4: It's extraordinary to hear you talking about groups of people with disabilities having to come up with a plan or or talking through how to defend themselves against the police. But that's where things are.
2: Yes, it is.
4: So with few hopes of the major shift in police culture, which could save the lives of people with disabilities, where de-escalating situations really is the focus, and even fewer expectations that mental health provision will radically improve here, some of the most vulnerable in American society are being left to work things out for themselves.
0: And that special investigation was from the BBC's North America correspondent, Aleem Makboul. The documentary was called Don't Shoot, I'm Disabled. When we come back, we'll talk about how police incidents with disabled people fit into police accountability here. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. Before the break, we heard a documentary from the BBC about why so many people with serious mental illness, learning difficulties, and physical impairment are dying at the hands of police. Chicago was one of the cities mentioned in the documentary. Joining us to give us an insight into the criminal justice system of Chicago is Craig Futterman. He is the founder and director of Civil Rights and Police Accountability Project at the University of Chicago's Mandel Legal Aid Clinic. Thanks for joining us, Craig Futterman.
7: Thanks so much for having me, Jerome.
0: You know, the documentary was, um, you know, really shocking in a lot of ways. And I think we've heard so much about the use of excessive force uh, in Chicago and the city and this country. Um, but we never uh, put it in this framework where where people with disabilities are involved. Um, what, wh- how did you react to all that?
7: I mean, it, it's deeply disturbing and sad and on a human level. And then also, though, it's unnecessary. Um, I mean, we're seeing the results and that report so visceral, viscerally describes the results of when we really have – use a square peg, you know, try to play square peg into a round hole to have a police and criminal legal response to what are really public health issues. And, um, you know, it raises the questions of why are we using police officers who, and, and with the tools that police officers use the Tools of force um, and, and, and weapons and guns and training around things like command and control to respond to situations in which um, people are in need of help um, and people are in the need of professional help um, and there are folks who are trained to provide that kind of help and then secondly it, it raises fundamental questions that were that were stated by many of the folks who were interviewed in that report about so. If there are reasons um, at times for a police officer to be or police teams to be part of that response and given the numbers of of folks who police officers interact with who are who suffer from mental illness um, or physical physical disabilities how critically important it is that officers are appropriately trained um, to respond to those situations and trained to de-escalate um, and so many of the stories I just heard were stories in which the kind of protocol, prototypical police training which involved things like command and control served to escalate a situation that never needed to result in the use of any force whatsoever as opposed to using things like time and using things like distance and training and, and, and conversation to try to um, get folks the help they need without the use of any force or violence.
0: Is there any detailed analysis of what's happening with disabled people and their encounters with police in Chicago?
7: Yeah, there there's a lot but I don't want to pretend, to, you know, sadly, I may not be the best guess for this because I don't want to pretend to be the the expert on policing and policing, policing with folks um, suffering disabilities. But as a matter of fact, in, in Chicago right now, um, and there was both a report that was done by the Police Accountability Task Force that that spoke about these issues and made numerous recommendations as to what needs to happen, as well as a consent decree that's being considered right now by a federal judge, and um, disability advocates from organizations like Equip from Equality and ACLU who have really fought to implement and to um, instill best practices um, when it comes to working with and responding to people in crisis. And sadly, as you've heard from the report, that's an area in which in Chicago, but not just in Chicago, but in Chicago, we've fallen particularly short.
0: Now the 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 consent decree, the the new consent decree that's out there. Um, how does it factor these kind of things in? Uh, how do you juggle that?
7: Yeah. So among among the things that people have have cried out for to be included in the decree are ensuring that officers are appropriately trained and that every officer, I mean, if officers are going to be responding to situations with people who are disabled and people who are in crisis, that they're trained to do so and they're trained um, to de-escalate and that they're going out um, ideally not alone, but as a part of a team with trained professionals as well um, to de-escalate these situations. So it's a combination of both Training, but also the implementation of um, of concrete plans of what to do and actions um, in re- when responding to people who are experiencing crises.
0: I'm talking with Craig Futterman. He is the founder and director of the Civil Rights and Police Accountability Project at the University of Chicago's Mandel Legal Aid Clinic. Uh, it is. Um, Difficult for police to be the people who are kind of the catch-all here. If we have, uh, I thought the documentary did an interesting job of uh, you know pointing out that we need a lot more medical professionals involved. We need uh, better treatment and care, and um, that there's so much that it ends up falling in the lap of somebody who gets called by a nine-one-one call in, into the situation. Uh, is there a, a different avenue that um, that we've got to? Got to take if we're if we're going to kind of reduce these incidents.
7: Yeah, well, it, it's it starts with um, kind of the obvious, which is we've defunded um, public services for mental health, for counseling, for drug and alcohol addiction, and people with disabilities, and and instead we are substituting. We've substituted in the criminal legal system, where it's often been said here in Chicago that you know Cook County is the houses, the greatest percentage it is, the our, our state mental health facility. And, and that's sad and it's inappropriate. And then it also, when when we have folks and in, inadequate treatment for it, the crises more likely occur. And then secondly, are things that we've already talked about is because there will be some crises. It's, it's ensuring that we have folks who are appropriately trained and Mental health professionals who are out there responding to those crises and also um, preparing and, and instilling our other first responders so that they know how to respond to those crises without escalating and only using then force when absolutely necessary to protect human life.
0: The documentary talked about race and the higher police presence in a lot of uh, communities. And uh, the, just the uh, uh, higher likelihood that police are going to encounter people uh, with serious mental illnesses in certain circumstances when there's just more police around. Uh, is, um, is there something, um, you know, this seems uh, so unfair to people. Uh, how do you rectify something like that?
7: Yeah, I mean, another reality that you're pointing out in the United States as well as in Chicago is that police stop, arrest, and kill black and brown folks at far greater rates than they do whites. And while, for example, black folks make up only about 12% of our nation's population, African Americans make up nearly 1 million of our nation's 2.2 million prisoners. And indeed, we have more black people in prison in the U.S. today than so, than in South Africa, the height of apartheid. And among the things that um, we know and study all too well is that police abuse in America is is not an equal opportunity phenomenon. The sto- social status of the victim and race matters perhaps more than any other single factor. And then when you combine, just as this report does, um, issues of race and disability, you have a... Black deaf man out on the street who is unable to hear police commands and lots of research that show not just racism 101, but racism racism 1.0 or racism 2.0, in which police officers like much of society are far more likely to see Black men and women as threats, violent and criminals it leads to then people who are disabled and black as being doubly and triply more vulnerable and likely to be subjected to deadly force and unjustified deadly force.
0: What happens in the legal system when uh, we see the cases um, go into the courts and into people with uh, disabilities? uh, It seems like if they're being treated unfairly on the streets, they're probably being treated unfairly in the rest of the system.
7: Yeah, well, let's, let's look at, you know, at, at prosecutions of police shootings, which are when, when police officers shoot people. So one, in terms of how much we've cared about this as a society, it's beyond shameful that we still don't keep and we don't require police departments to keep data when a police officer takes someone's life. Um, we, we know that about or, or we estimate um, based on based on based on studies that about eleven hundred to twelve hundred people in the United States per year are killed by police. And so when we ask about what happens um, in then the system, particularly criminal legal system, it's incredibly rare that a police officer an on duty police officer in particular is, is ever criminally prosecuted um, when he or she takes someone's someone's life and to put this perspective um, and now to cross this over with race here in Chicago so in Chicago um, police officers on average um, over the last 30 or 40 years have shot on average about one person a week it's gone down a little bit in recent years but one thing that hasn't changed is that 75% of the people shot by Chicago police in Chicago are black what that means is, notwithstanding still the many hundreds of black folks who have been shot by police in my lifetime, Jason Van Dyke, in the infamous case just a couple of weeks ago, is the very first on duty Chicago police officer ever, ever to have been held criminally accountable for killing a black man, woman, or child, ever in, in Chicago history. Um, so the, the, the legal system has also fallen far short when it comes to holding officers accountable when they abuse their powers. And even in the most serious cases, when um, we're talking about the state taking a, a human life.
0: Craig Futterman is the founder and director of the Civil Rights and Police Accountability Project at the University of Chicago's Mandel Legal Aid Clinic. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about uh, the documentary that we just heard, Don't Shoot Me, I'm Disabled. Thanks very much, Craig Futterman.
7: Thanks so much again for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music. Hope you can join us for that. Steve Bynum and Julian Haida produce Worldview, and Mike Gilmore, engineered today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.